church and you give back to God, everything has to do with money. And I think oftentimes we substitute God. And I'm not saying that you guys are money hungry. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying that oftentimes we put more trust in this because without this, we become what? Homeless. Trust is the underwriting thing. In a relationship, if you don't trust the other person, it's not a really good relationship. Whenever I um, do premarital counseling or whenever I've met with couples who, who are going through something, you know, the, the first question I ask is, what is your relationship founded on? And my answer, the hope I get, the answer that I hope I get is that it's founded in trust. Because when you trust somebody, it makes everything better. In football and in any other sports metaphor, we're Bronco fans, you see, um, this, this is a bunch of really large men who protect the quarterback. And if you're not a sports fan or a football fan, the quarterback is the guy who throws the ball. And so these five, up to six linemen sometimes, they will block the other team from coming in, and the quarterback trusts that his offensive line will actually stop the other team from coming in, which is why a lot of these younger quarterbacks, it's not that they don't trust it, they're just not used to it, and so they can't stand in what is called the pocket where the line will collapse around them, and they have to trust that even if there's opposing players all around them, that their team will not let them get to him. It's trust. Ancient war tactics in ancient Greece, what we call the phalanx, these soldiers would stand shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, and they trusted that none of them would break rank because this became one of the most effective ways of war because they trusted that nobody was going to chicken out and run back. They trusted each other with their lives. And so the question that I keep coming back to is what do you put your trust in? Do you really trust God? Or do you kind of trust God, but you want to just trust yourself more? I want to look at the first text for this morning. It's in Psalms chapter 20. Oh, no, it's not. Psalm chapter 20, verse 6. And this is what the psalmist writes. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand. That phrase, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, these were military weapons, tools for war. And so what the psalmist is saying is that some trust what they have and the power that they have in order to make life better and others trust in God. Another way of saying it this way, if it was written in 2012, would be some trust in drone attacks and tanks. Or some trust in, in what is it, in Hummers, I had it here somewhere, or some trust in Hummers and, I don't know, some other kind of weapon. We have a tendency that we put our trust in the things we can see and feel and touch because we know they'll be there. But it's so much more difficult to trust in God because we don't see God. 
I've talked to God many times, and I have never heard him audibly speak back to me. Now, I've had a sense that God is speaking to me at different times and at different points in my life, but I've never actually heard the voice of God, which is why I can understand why it's so difficult to trust God. Now, we have friends, and we know people, and you might be one of them, where for anything and everything that happens, we say, oh, you know, just let the Lord handle it. But if you're anything like me, it's hard. Because if there's a problem, if an issue arises, before I say, I just, you know, I'll say, yeah, I trust God. But what I do is I make sure that I do everything I can to solve the problem. How many of you are in that same place? Something goes wrong, what do you do? You, you find every, for me, and, and this might be a, a, a male mentality, at least that's what my therapist tells me, <laughs> men want to fix everything. So if there's a problem, what do we do? Fix it. This past week, uh, we find solutions. That's what I teach my boys. Um, for every problem in this world, there's always a solution. It's just about finding the right solution. I see some of you men nodding your heads, okay? <laughs> so this week, and this is where the women are going to disagree with me. I'm glad Kim's not here. She's in, with the children's church. This week, our youngest, had a, he, he got sick, Gavin. Now, this, nothing stops this kid. If he has a headache, if, he has, if he's not feeling well, he won't say anything because he knows that if he's not well, he can't play. He can't go out. He can't go to his cousin's house. He can't do all these fun things. So he'll just suck it up and he'll, you know, he'll play through it. But this particular week, I mean, he was, he came home from school and usually he's like, let's go play here or let's do this. This week, he just, on Wednesday, he just came home and he was just laying down. Never does that. So I'm like, well, something might be wrong. And I noticed that his face was a little red, but I thought it was from the sun. Okay, remember, I'm a stepdad, a year and a half in. So, no big deal. So, I think um, on Wednesday night, I had to go out to a meeting, and I come home, and Kim's like, he has a fever. Gavin has a fever. And I'm like, cold shower, <laughs> you know? Isn't that how we fix it? You throw him into a, a cold, ice-cold shower. He's like, I'm not going to do that to him. I said, well, then give him medicine. Like, fix it. There's a fix. There's a solution to this. Just do it. Well, Gavin's still sick today, so I feel bad, right? He's still... I think they're taking him to the doctor today. But us men, we, we put our trust in the things that we've learned and the things that are in front of us. Cold shower, medicine, sleep, water, I don't know, whatever else we do when you get sick because we figure it, he's going to get over it, you know, eventually. We tend to trust the things that have worked in the past because they are right in front of us. And yet a very true message from Scripture in Isaiah 55 is this. God says to Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, and that's God's way of saying, um, in, in the, in back thousands of years ago, the way they understood everything, it was a three-tier view of the world. So they were here on earth. So to them, good must be above. So God must live above. And the opposite of good, because it was dualistic as well, the opposite of good is what? What is it? Bad. And if good is up, then bad must be where? So it was a three-tier way of understanding it. So when God uses the word, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, what he's saying is my ways. The place where you somehow think I live, because I have a hard time as a pastor and as reading scripture believing that God lives somewhere far away. That's not... I don't see that in the scriptures. I see that as a God of a God, that a picture of God who is with us daily. And if God is somewhere far away, then God can't be here. And if God isn't here, then God is a liar. 
And I don't believe that's true. So this is God's way of saying, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my words be that go out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish which I, that which I propose and, and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We trust so many other things, and yet God is saying, trust me. We can't blame ourselves for this, can we? Because when we're sick, where do we go? To the doctor. When we have a legal issue, where do we go? To the lawyer. When we need to run a marathon or get in shape, where do we go? Personal trainer. When your car breaks down and it's not something you can fix, where do you go? Mechanic. <laughs> when you need to do your taxes and you're not sure how to do them, who do you go to? Joel. <laughs> that was my joke, and I, you guys, that was great. I had it, yeah, no. I actually, you go to an accountant. When, you're, when, when a line bursts in your house and there's water everywhere, who do you go to? John. Wait, let's do this again. When you have legal issues, who do you go to? <laughs> We, we trust people to know that they know what they're doing. We go to those people because we say, I have this problem, fix it. But I think oftentimes in our lives when things go bad, I think sometimes what happens is we've, we stop trusting in God and we started trusting our own reason. Now, I think I'm a pretty smart guy, but I've trusted myself many times and I've gotten things wrong over the years. We trust everything else because it's there in front of us. And God is saying, can you just trust me first? Put all of your trust in me. And sure, I might lead you to a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor. I might lead you there, but trust that I know what's best for you. Trust that, by the way, I can see the end from the beginning. I know what's going to happen. I kind of see everything. I can predict anything if I needed to. I, I can do all things. Will you just trust me? Just, just open yourself up to me. And that's hard because in my mind, I always say, God, I trust you to do what's best, but I don't always live that out. Am I alone on that? I don't always trust God. And so if there's a problem, I go and try to find every which possible way to fix it. And then when I can't fix it, then what do I do? Okay, God, I need some help now. Now, I've been praying to God the whole time, but I don't always trust him. In our small groups, we've been going over the experiencing God, and, and there's a quote that I wanted to share with you. And... Uh, it's not on there, so I'll read it from here. And the quote says this, Right now, God is working all around you. One of the greatest tragedies among God's people is that even though they, us, long to experience God, they don't know how to recognize Him at work in their midst. Isn't that true? Usually, it's when we look back that we realize, oh, God was there. God led me here. God was there in this process. What I would love is to be able to see that as I'm experiencing it. One of the things that I try to do, and, I'll, and I, I've shared this, with, I think, with the elders and with some of the young adults, but I'll share it as a church. One of the prayers that I learned to pray 
is that in the morning or at night, it just depends how it works out, I'll look back on the last 24 hours and I'll look to see where God was present. And it's not just in the happy moments. If you, if you really stop to examine your life, you begin to see that God was there all along. But perhaps I was looking for something else. I would say it this way, God is even present here. It's not just that God is only present here, it's that God is present here also. And God will be present on your drive home. And God will be present when you share a meal with friends. And God will be present when you're alone. And God is present right before and during and through and after you do those questionable things. God is always present. It's whether we are open and receptive to God's presence. And I think for the Christian life, that's one of the most difficult things to do. So I want to look at a biblical story. Now, you've heard probably of the story of Jacob's ladder. Jacob was a guy who was on the run. And so he, he's on the run, and he lays down to fall asleep. And in it, there's a dream where there's angel. There's a staircase that goes to heaven, and there's angels going up and down from this staircase, right? So that's kind of the dream of just laying it out. And when he wakes up, this is his response. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. So if you feel like you're missing God's presence in your life, that's, it's what has happened for thousands of years. This guy was running for his life, stole his brother's birthright. He was just on the run. He lays down somewhere, anywhere, any place, and God meets him in that place. And this is what he says, and he, and, he, and he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar, poured oil on it, kind of a way to sanctify it, on top of it. Now, was this really the gate to heaven? Could we go there and get to heaven? It would be nice, right? But that's not the reality. He was so moved by the experience of being encountered by God that he said, this surely must be a sacred, holy place. He sets up a rock. He makes it a holy place. And we're conditioned to think that way, that we have to be ready to meet God. I think sometimes um, we want our friends and family to come to church because we think if they come to church, then, then they'll experience God. That if they come to church, then they'll be saved. But the reality is, is that God isn't more present here than he's present anywhere else. Amen? If that was true, that's kind of a weird God. We like it here. We feel something different when we gather together. That's what happens when you worship because God fills us when we worship. It's weird. We're, we're emptying ourselves, and yet God is filling us. God is present everywhere all the time. And we often think, like, I have to set intentional time. Let, let me give you this example. We often think that we have to set intentional time for God to speak to us or to be present to us. So what do we do? What do preachers do, myself included at times? I'll say the first thing you do in the morning, if you can, or, or make it happen, is, you know, spend some time reading the Scriptures and letting it kind of soak into you for the day. And spend some time in prayer because you have to spend intentional time with God because if you don't, then God won't encounter you. The truth is, if, that, if that's true that that's the only way that God will meet you, then God is kind of a capricious God. If God says, well, you have to do that, and if you don't, then I'm not going to talk to you, then that's not really love. 
How many of you men have ever told you, I hope none, none of us, but how many of you would ever tell your wife, if you really love me, then you'll cook for me this special meal that I want? Or if you, I said that jokingly to Kim, not that, I said something, and she just looked at me with this look, and I was like, just kidding, it's a joke. And then she said some stuff. No, <laughs> But that's the truth, right? That's what kids do, right? If you love me, you'll, my son will tell me, if you do this, then I'll be your best friend. I'll be like, I'm your best friend anyway, so I'm still not going to do that, you know? And it's one of those things where, or you tell him, I'm your stepdad. I don't need to be your best friend, you know? But, but it's one of those things where that's not really love. That's not love. If you do something, then God will. I, the best metaphor for how God meets us is, um, and this is just a 2012 analogy, text messaging. Do you have to be in a specific place in order to receive a text message, or do they just come when they want to? Whenever that person has to tell you something, right, you could be asleep, you could be in the car, you can be in class, you can be in church, you can be wherever it is. And I would say it this way, that God works a lot like text message. He shows up when he wants to, period. We always think that we're initiating a, a, a relationship with God, like, okay, you know, now I'm ready to have this relationship with God. And God's like, man, I've been doing this all along. I'm not going to now come and be a part of your life. I've been a part of your life. You just haven't seen it. That's the way God chooses to work. God doesn't need you to be perfect. God doesn't need you to follow certain rules, and then he'll be your God, and then he'll help you. God's like, you're my child. I'm going to help you and be with you and want this relationship with you no matter what you do, no matter what you've done. I'm always there. And so it's this story of Jacob where it's like, you know, God has been at work around us all along, and we just haven't seen it. But what happens is that when we go through difficult times, we don't necessarily look towards God. We look towards the things that have always worked. And God is saying, will you just trust me for a second? And I think that what needs to happen here is that we need to do a, a, what they call a paradigm shift in our lives. Now, some of you may already be doing this. But what I have found in my life as a full-time professional pastor who is dedicated not only to serving this church, but a part of my job is to fill myself with Scripture, to fill myself with prayer, to continually intercede for you. A part of my job is that. And even for me, my calling, my career, what I get paid to do is always be centered on who God is and help the church move forward. Even for me, sometimes I choose my own way. Even for me, sometimes I make decisions that I think are better, even though there may be another option. And the only way to make this paradigm shift is to use this, this cliche from about 10 years ago, okay? So just bear with me. But the cliche from about 10 or 15 years ago, do you remember these bracelets? The what would Jesus do bracelets? It was all the fad and, you know, some company made a ton of money from selling this little what would Jesus do bracelet. And yet the more I've thought about it is, if we lived every moment of our life with what would Jesus do in this situation, do you think things would be different? I think so. I, um, it's kind of like this. When you're in a relationship, and I know this has not happened to any of you, but let's say you get into a heated discussion with your boyfriend or girlfriend, your husband or wife, your mom or dad, your brother or sister, right? We've, none of us have ever done that. That's why we're Christians, right? But let's just say if someone had, like your friend, 
has gotten in an argument before. They're angry. What tends to happen when you're angry when you're arguing with somebody? Yeah, you outburst. You yell. You scream. You might even say or call somebody names. Right? But a good therapist will tell you this, and I, and I try to use this all the time. I'm not a good therapist. I'm not a therapist at all, but I try to help. Is does she deserve to be spoken to that way? Does he deserve to be spoken that to that way? No. The answer is always no. The answer is always no because if that's your brother or sister, that's your family. If it's your mother or father, that's the people God has given to guide you. If it's your boyfriend or girlfriend, you've committed to that person. If it's your wife or your husband, they definitely don't deserve to be treated that way. You see, if we ask the question, what would Jesus do? What we're really asking is, God, what do you need me to do? Not only that, it's this, God, in this situation, how can I glorify you? Now, is that the first thing you think about when something happens? Or do you act on emotion first, usually? Yeah, we get some, something happens, we get upset. That's the paradigm shift. When we act on emotion, it's you have hurt me, so of course I'm going to talk to you this way. Because this is how I feel, but the truth is, do they deserve to be talked to that way? Now, if they did something really bad, maybe not, I don't know. <laughs> it depends how bad, you know, the scale, whatever. But the truth is, for most ordinary experiences and interactions we have in our lives, if we ask what would glorify God in this particular situation, I have a feeling that things would change. I have a feeling that we would all live our lives differently if we asked the question, would this glorify God? So I have a list of a couple of things. Would looking at that man or woman glorify God? Would looking at that website glorify God? Would eating this thing glorify God? Would spending my money on this glorify God? Would having this particular thought glorify God? Would saying this about that person to this other person glorify God? Would talking to him in this way glorify God? You know, we spend our entire lives trying to get rid of sin from our lives. Stay away from this, stay away from that. That's easy. I would say the harder way and the way that Jesus is calling us to live, because being a Christian isn't always easy. We're judged by different standards. We are. You judge people that are Christians by different standards because oftentimes we'll say, and they call themselves a Christian? Every time you say that, if you ever have, remember that someone else is saying that about you. It's just the way it is. What has to change is that we have to change the center of all of our being from ourselves to placing it on God. And so I want to look at something from the book. Now, if you're in the small group, you read it this past week. If you're not, or you'll read it next week, it's a self-centered life. A self-centered life is what we're born with. It's how we're born to live. It's, you know, it's a dog-eat-dog world. No one is looking out for you. People are going to take advantage of you, so you have to look out for yourself. That's the way, that's the non-Christian way of looking at the world. But a self-centered way is 
um, is that you are focused on yourself only. A self-centered life is that is proud of self and your accomplishments. It's self-confident. Now, this is, we're going to come back to this one because it's not that you're, it's okay to be confident. It depends on self and its abilities. It affirms yourself. You're like believing that you're, you're, you're what other people say you are, like you're the most awesome this or that. A self-centered life seeks to be acceptable to the world and its ways. It looks at circumstances from a human perspective, and it chooses selfish and ordinary living. So that's a self-centered life. Everything is about me. When we're kids, we're especially like that. As children, it's mine, right? That's mine, that's mine, that's mine. For some reason, as kids, we don't like to share. Or I think that's what it is for a lot of kids. When we're born, we're raised, everything revolves around me. The hope is that as we get older, as we mature, and as our relationship with God grows, the hope is that it's no longer about just what I want or my own views or my personal taste, but it's about what's best for everyone around me. The hope is that we move from my way to God's way. Now, a God-centered life, which is the paradigm shift that needs to happen, is that it places confidence in God. It depends on God and God's ability and provision. It focuses on God and God's activity. Is humble before God. A God-centered life denies self, which means this is what I want, but maybe what God wants is actually this, and this would be better. So you learn to kind of die to your own personal wants and say, okay, God, wherever you're leading me. A God-centered life seeks first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. A God-centered life seeks God's perspective in every circumstance. A God-centered life chooses holy and godly living and to know and do God's will, you must deny yourself and return to a God-centered life. In essence, what this little chart is saying is that to live a God-centered life is you have to choose God and not choose yourself. Is that easy to do? No, because you are yourself. It's not always easy to do this because sometimes God will call us to do some things that just go against the grain of our being. And God says, but this is the way. My ways are higher than your ways. I promise you this is the best possible way. I promise you that in this situation, this is how you need to be acting because this is. The, I promise it's going to go a lot further. God says, trust me, I know, but oftentimes we trust ourselves because we can measure what's about to happen. When God calls us to do something, it's not always measurable. Because when God calls us, God oftentimes calls us to do the impossible. Did you know that? When God calls us, He often calls us to do what feels impossible. Because God says, if you feel that way, you'll rely on me and I will take you the rest of the way. Just trust. I would say that there's a passage in Scripture, and this is the last passage that I have. It's in John chapter 12, verse 23. And Jesus says, very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So I'd put it this way. Think of the grain of wheat as yourself. Unless you die... 
you will not bear fruit. I'm not telling you to go kill yourselves, okay? This is a metaphor. To die to yourself is to say, I know that I am a selfish being and I'm always going to want to get my way with my family, with my friends, at my work, at my church. I'm selfish. It's how I'm wired. I was born into a world where selfishness is just the way of of the world, and that's how I was born. And so we have to learn to take that and say, God, I want to die to this today. Help me to get out of the way of your leading in my life. It says, "Unless, unless a grain of wheat dies, unless we die to ourselves, we will not bear fruit. But if it dies, it bears fruit, and those who love their life lose it. And that's, that's the way of saying, now this is, I know, biblical talk, you know, if we take this literally, it doesn't really make that much sense. So we have to take it more seriously than just being literal. And so he said, and, and so what this means, and there's a couple other passages in the other Gospels, that if you try to advance yourself and you're only worried about this world, and if you're only worried about how big of a house you can have or how big of a car or how expensive of a car, or if you're only worried about those shoes or that shirt, if you're only worried about how much money you can make off of these investments, if you're only worried about how much you can gain in this world to have an awesome life, God says you're going to lose it because you've missed the point. Now, are any of those things in 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 of themselves bad? No. Nice things are okay. Like, nice things are okay, all right? Like, I just want to lay that out there. Nice things are okay. If you can afford it, great. But if you're getting into debt to get all of these things, you should probably stop. There's truth in that because if you're having to maintain your life out of debt, there's a problem and you're missing the point. Okay, some people make more money, other people make less money. I would say that the people that make more money that are Christians, God knows they can handle it. The people that make less money, God knows you probably couldn't handle all that money, so that's why you're at where you're at. I'm not saying that God can control all that or that he does. I'm just saying that if I was rich, I probably couldn't handle it. That's a personal admission on my part. So I'm happy where I'm at. But God is saying if you're only focusing on the things of this world, if you're only focusing on all these material things, you've missed the point. So he says, for those of you who love your life in this world, you're going to lose it. You're not going to enter eternal life. And it's not because God is judging you. It's because you've judged yourself and saying, this is what's important to me. I have a friend who has a car that's old. And he's like, if I just had that car, if I just had that car, if I just had that car, I'm like, dude, your car is nice just the way it is. It's really not, but it's the point I'm trying to make. But it runs, and it's what he needs. And I said, who cares what the car looks like as long as you have a car? See, this is the process we take our children through. My kid, um, my kid, my, my middle son, actually my youngest son too, he'll be like, um, man, that car is my dream car. It's like not even a nice car. And they like cars. You know, I used to love cars too until I turned 16 and I got my first car and then I just didn't really care about cars anymore because I got a 1988 Dodge Turbo Conquest. I realized life hit me in the face. You're never going to get that that car. If you're just trying to build this life up, if that's your sole purpose, you're missing the point. But if you're a believer in Jesus and if you want to be a true Christian that follows Jesus wherever he goes, he says, just die to all that material stuff because rust will get to it. It will be destroyed. It will just become nothing. Just trust me. I can say from experience 
that when you learn to trust God, life is more fulfilling. I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor. It's easy for me. This is my job. So I, I'm blessed and I'm lucky and I'm all those words. But when you learn to serve God, what you begin to find is that God will ask you to give more, to serve more. But what happens in serving, your whole life changes because all of a sudden, wow, I'm doing something meaningful in this world. I don't want to have a job where I have to worry about working overtime so I can make more money. Because all we're really doing, as we saw in the beginning, money just pays for us to live. I want to live a life where I'm making a difference. And I will live in a one-bedroom house if that's what it takes. Because in, in reality, at the very end of life, you don't get to take any of the toys you have. All you take is the memory of who you were. This morning, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to live a life that trusts God. It's like that, that, that fall, you know, when you have kids, when you're at camp, and they say, okay, we're going to have, what is it called, the, 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 what is it, that faith thing where the kids are lined up on each side and the kid, like, falls and they trust that person to catch them? I hate that. I don't, I've never played that game because I don't trust the people to catch me, okay? Unless they're strong people. I'm a little bit, you know, more muscular and muscle weighs more than fat, so I'm pretty heavy. So I don't always trust people to catch me. And yet God is saying, I'll catch you, I promise. God is calling you to trust him in such a way where you really trust him and you don't trust in yourself. God still calls you to be a responsible human being, but God wants you to start with him, with his kingdom, with his righteousness. God says, trust me, and I will always be there for you. Will you pray with me? God, as, we, as we've heard your challenge this morning to trust you more, God, it sounds good on paper. We love the stories in the Bible of the people who have trusted you. But we're afraid that sometimes we have to walk through the fire. And so for a lot of us, we just don't. But this morning, I want to encourage my friends and my family who are here this morning. Help us to trust you more, to put our trust in you so that we would live the life you have created us to live. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.